welcome to God is Open. I, I hope everything's working right now. Let's uh, let's see. Everyone got some audio, and uh, there's a box behind me. And no one knows about that. Today we're going to be talking about this guy. Let's pull him up here. This is our friend. Apparently, his name is Anthony Rogers. We'll we'll see if I could go an entire stream with remembering the person's name. So that will be a brand new feat. Uh, never before happened, but it could happen. And he says open theism is wicked. And also, apparently, he doesn't say anything for the first, like, 45 minutes. So I don't know. So I have expert advice to skip the first 45 minutes. And that's probably pretty good advice because a lot of times we're reviewing these videos and the first, like, hour of these guys talking, it's just like, ah, oh, yes, kind of same old, same old. So maybe, maybe he'll give us something new tonight. So I'm just going to go ahead and play. We're at uh, like a 46-minute mark, something like that, and see what this guy has to say. Open theism, super wicked. Two extremely late individuals. Okay, so we have no fathers from the first century, none from the second century, none from the third century, uh, a false uh, claim about a Christian in the fourth century, skips over the rest of Christian history until he gets to the 13th century, mentions one individual, skips over the 14th century, gives us another individual from the 15th century, uh, and and uh, it's not even clear that these guys held to that view. Not even he speaks confidently. So right now he's talking about church fathers. Uh, one of the problems with talking about these church fathers is that, uh, you know, the earliest church fathers absolutely were open theists. Clement of Rome, for example, and uh, I think I got some uh, Ignatius quotes as well, that God gains knowledge through observation of the world. That's a pretty common theme in the early church. And so if God's gaining knowledge in any respect, these people are open theists. And uh, what, what does Paul write? Uh, someone pointed out in God is Open just recently that Paul says, let, let your requests be made known to God. Paul is an open theist. These people are all open theists. Uh, that's what's happening, and it doesn't happen until you get the Platonizing effect that people like the Justin Martyrs of the world who are coming from a tradition of Platonism into the church until you get the Platonistic concepts. And so he's got no quotes from people who don't have Platonistic backgrounds for his preferred attributes. We do got quotes from people not with Platonistic backgrounds talking uh, like an open theist. Of course, they, they'll be very dismissive. Remember, if the Bible says anything open theistic, like God sits in heaven and watches the world. That's open theistic. God is gaining knowledge from watching. They'll just, they'll jump through hoops to try to dismiss it. Oh, God's not actually watching. That's just like human language. They don't actually believe the things that they're saying. Um, that's not even learning information. It's just kind of like seeing what he already knows in his mind. They'll jump through hoops to try to dismiss the language of the Bible. And so, yeah, I, I guess if you want to jump through all sorts of absurd hoops, you could say no one taught open theism ever, I guess, in history. That, that's that's how loose this language is. Only of them holding to this view. But then what does he do? Now, here's where he really starts to gain some traction, folks. Okay. Here's where he really starts to gain some tractions and has found some real, true advocates of his position. I'm going to quote him again. Some Islamic scholars affirmed dynamic omniscience all right Some we're gonna try to skip around and Abd maybe he'll talk about the bible figure of the at the, the trinity 50 minute mark. hey what's one more traditional christian belief to deny how about the foreknowledge of god let's throw that out <laughs> traditional traditional uh, idea rationalist 
who was jealous to uh, hold on oh, yeah. to a notion of libertarian freedom. Just Okay, when I was told 45 minutes, maybe that they're being generous about how long he talks about this stuff. It would be interesting to go back and, and see what he says about the various church fathers. There might be some gleanings from that, uh, historical accuracies, but uh, not for our purposes tonight. Oh, and I forgot to mention, um, I forgot to mention, also as a result of the comments in the chat. Oh, somebody gave uh, this guy 200 somebody bucks. Somebody else came in. Look at he that. He has a YouTube channel called The Idol Killer. His name is Warren McGrew. Maybe he can afford a hat. Uh, so I had a number of people in the chat uh, challenging me to uh, debate somebody on this issue. And I said, bring them, right? Bring whoever you want. I'll be happy to debate this issue. I don't know if Warren McGrew, a.k.a. the Idol Killer, uh, got a message from one of those people that was saying this. But in any case, he he came in and he said, I'll debate you on this topic. So uh, we've already spoken with Marlon Wilson at the Gospel Truth channel. I've already done numerous debates on the Gospel Truth channel. I'm happy to do this debate. So we are tentatively, I mean, when I say tentatively, I only mean that I'm not omniscient, so I don't know what the future holds, but we have scheduled it for, I think it's October 21st. Let me check. Let me check real quick. Yeah, October 21st, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So no excuses, people. No excuses. Uh, set your uh, set your schedule for this. You have no excuses. So this would this. It actually be an Not interesting plan debate. Accordingly. This will be an interesting debate because I don't know a new guy. Maybe there's going to be no new arguments. Uh, he's he's not like uh, Warren McGrew's also doing a Tyler Vela debate, which is like, oh man, I I do do not want. I I'm gonna I'm gonna get suckered into watching that again. But I do not want to watch that one. Old old hat, disingenuous person. This guy actually might be an interesting debate. But we're, we'll skip forward again. So maybe oh look at that. It looks like he might be talking about the Bible. Coming up right about here, Psalms one fifteen. Let's let's see what this says. Okay, Psalm one fifteen is dealing with the wicked who are uh, taunting the righteous. Yeah. So right now he's gonna spin it and probably frame it. I've not seen this part. I I jumped in for maybe like one minute while this was live, and then I jumped out because it's been a uh, been been a very busy week, so I don't have too much time. But so what he's probably going to do here is he's going to try to spin this and frame this. But let's say that my kids are talking to their friends and they say, oh, our dad, he, he uh, rules the house. He does whatever he pleases. So what would what would flag in your mind? Would, would it be an instant, oh, man, he must have like sovereign micromanagement control over everything? Listen, I can't even get these dumb flies. I got like flies in my house that my kids let in sometimes. I can't even kill all those. But yeah, it is accurate to say that I do whatever I please. I sit in my house and do whatever I please. It is an accurate use of language. People want to selectively decide when language doesn't have the normal flexibilities that language normally does. There was just a thread in the Bible Brodown in which a guy he wants to advance a once saved, only saved, which I'm very sympathetic. I, I would consider myself a... a with caveats, once saved, always saved. But he he pulls up Jesus's quote, I will never leave you for, for, or forsake you. And he asks, what if the emphasis is on never? What would this sentence mean? 
And my answer is like, well, yeah, if a wife is saying, I'll never leave you or forsake you, that means under normal foreseeable circumstances, even if they in their wedding vows say for better or for worse, that doesn't mean that in 10 years, if she finds out you are a child molester, that she's going to stay with you because she made this promise never to leave you. No, the idea is as long as you stay within the normal range of what's expected and foreseeable without these these terrible character flaws that are irredeemable, yeah, I'll stay with you, even if the language says never, because that's that's how language works. Language works with that flexibility such that you can make these absolute types of statements, and they're not really absolute. They're limited by context and limited by rationality. So if you want to make a claim that uh, God sits in heavens and does whatever he pleases, and therefore Calvinism, that means he does everything, that, that number one, it doesn't say that. Number two, it's a huge stretch to even go from language that looks hyperbolic. Uh, God does everything. Let's say God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Um, taking that language that all things and then just a, a, applying it to everything that's ever happened, ever will happen, everything that's happening, just absolutely everything. Typically, things are limited by context. That's That's how language works. Typically, it's not meant to be all-encompassing. So you have to make more than just a reading it argument to try to make that additional claim that it, it's applicable to that extent. And so I don't think this guy's going to do that. So let's see if my prediction comes true. And the psalmist is responding to this. He's calling upon God to act on his behalf. And he's his, part of his appeal is, why should the nation say... Oh, idol killer just turned tuned in. Uh, he was just talking about you. He's saying, I'm going to debate this guy, idol killer. And all his uh, fans in the comments are like, we hate that guy. So from the perspective of the psalmist, when the psalmist, an Israelite, refers to the nations, he's referring to those who are outside the people of God. Okay, Why should the nations, the goyim, say, where now is their God? But our God no, notice that little thing. It's like the goyim. It's like, oh wow, you know a Hebrew word that's pretty common. I, I, you must be uh, intellect. I don't know. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Okay, so the psalmist is saying, in spite of the taunts of the wicked, who say that we're currently in our present situation. Yes, <laughs> because God is not with us. He's not present. So if you want a proof text, uh, your proof text needs to be something that your opponent that you're trying to disprove can't just readily say without hesitation. Yeah, open theists say God sits in his heaven, in the heavens, and does whatever he pleases. No, open theist has a problem with that. And so it's, it's, not, it's not really a proof text. The fact of the matter is, according to the psalmist, his firm conviction is this. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Oh, I, f I forget what, what uh, podcast was on, but I was talking to th this individual about the Psalms and they pulled up 139 and uh, they're saying, look at this. So it, it says that uh, before David speaks, God knows what's on his mind. And so I'm explaining to him that, no, it actually really, it's about a personal relationship. And if you read the Psalms, it's all about God searching David to find out how, what David's like. And then the guy says, yeah, but but this is uh, this is Psalms. This is not to be taken literally. And I said, well, oh, sure, but this is your per proof text that you introduced to prove one of your arguments.
and so it's it's well, yes, Psalms can't be necessarily taken literally, but we we do have to consider the mindset that the author is coming from. But we can't try to make hard and fast absolute statements from them either. And so it is pretty funny how how the tables turn when when their own proof texts are turned against them. Uh, then then they start then they start some critical thinking about the validity of the genre of literature that they're using. Even what's happening to the psalmist and to the nation right then is itself something that God is overseeing. Okay? God is not ignorant of this. God is not absent. God has not vacated his throne. God is not like Baal who can't hear the prayers of his people or who's busy on vacation or who has his pants around his ankles. Right? That's what Elijah literally says, you know, is your God taking a piss, uh, you know, is his pants around his ankles. The God of the Bible is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Do you believe that? Uh, uh, Mr. Anthony Rogers, do you believe that, that God is in the heavens? Huh? What, what does that mean, God is in the heavens? What picture is being, being painted there from the author? How does he see God in what role? Is this the same God that is described elsewhere in the Psalms as watching the world from the heavens? What do they mean? What, what are they communicating here? And so it's a, it's going to be a very selective use of phrases to make their argument. But I don't, he hasn't made his argument yet, so we'll see. And then the psalmist goes on, and you'll see now why I'm, I'm beginning with this. Their idols are silver and gold, so he's referring to the false gods of the pagans. The work of man's hands. Now, this is beautiful, too, because um, in, in the psalm, throughout the Bible, God is compared to the idols. And the comparison is like almost always this type of comparison. Basically, they can't see, they can't smell, they can't speak. God can smell. In, in Genesis, um, in, after the flood, they make an altar and then the soothing aroma, soothing. And so it, it talks about the pleasurable experience of smelling ascends to God and God smells. In classical theism, um, smelling is an experience. So God doesn't have this type of ex experiential knowledge. He doesn't have knowledge that he could acquire from the senses like that. But within the Bible, God can smell. And so a lot of the criticisms that are being levied here against the stone immutable idols of the pagans could also be leveled against the God of Calvinism, God of classical theism. God can actually talk. God can actually see. God can see. God, God can, can gain information visually. God can see. And God can smell. Yeah. Uh, he, can, he can do these things. Now, understand something here before I move on. Before something can be the product of human hands, it first has to be a product of their imaginations. So these idols are, in the first place, conceptual, and then something that they... Uh, they externalize, they, they create, which is, is just another way of getting at the fact that idolatry begins in the heart. It begins in the mind, right? The mind of man is an... So he's just making these like weird tangential points that don't actually conclude from the text. But we do need to keep in mind in the biblical story, mankind is made in the image of God. We don't make idols because we're we're the image of God. We're the imager. We don't have to make an image to bow down to and worship because man is made in the image of God. That's what actually gives us value why man should not kill mankind because you're killing the imager. Idol factory. Okay, so 
uh, it's sort of like Jesus saying in Matthew 5 that those who lust after a woman in their hearts are guilty of adultery. They're not guilty of the act of adultery, that is the external act, but they're guilty of the sinful lust that he identifies as itself adultery in the eyes of God. So that's actually a very interesting point. And that's an entire side subject. You don't really see thought crimes in the Old Testament. You you know, you can't worship other gods and stuff like that. So is it talking about the mindset or the act? It could be the mindset worshiping other gods, but the sin crimes that are listed in the Old Testament are not thought crimes. People might say covet, but covet might more accurately be translated as defraud, as Joel Hoffman mentions. But other than that, it's like oh, what when you're sinning, it's the actual act of sinning. So when Jesus is stating this, he's stating it to an audience who doesn't necessarily believe this. They're familiar with Old Testament morality where your actions are indi indicative of sins and your mental state really doesn't play a role. But that's not here, not here nor there on this, but it is just an interesting side point. And the same principle applies to idolatry. Idolatry is just as certainly a matter of the heart, a matter of the mind, as it is something that is externalized. So people can't run to the excuse, well, our idols, our ignorant idols, are not the same sort of things that the psalmist is castigating because we don't literally worship silver and gold, right? We, we haven't made, we haven't externalized the objects of our worship. But in any case, that's not even really the point that I'm after yet. Uh, it's, it's really found towards the end here. It says they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Yeah, they God have can ears, see. <laughs> but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. So the gods of the pagans. So that, that's, a, that's actually interesting. Um, I wonder if this guy, Anthony Rogers, if he was given the question, can God see? Can God gain information external through from himself through senses? Can God do that? That's that's typically what you mean by see. If, if you see, you're acquiring from outside yourself and see how he answers there. If uh, maybe, I, I don't know anything about this guy, so maybe he knows nothing about his uh, the classical theism that of the tradition that he belongs to. And so sometimes those people are like, well, of course he gains external information. And you're like, you don't know anything about your own beliefs, do you? Uh, but but maybe uh, maybe that's that's the way to trip this guy up and uh, because it's his proof text. So you ask him about his own proof text. Well, your proof text is criticizing the false idols for not being able to smell. Can God smell? Is that something God can do? And uh, he, he might he might try to wiggle out of that. Are themselves uh, bereft of these qualities. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't smell. Uh, they can't feel. Uh, they can't walk. OK. Then he goes on, they cannot make a sound with their throat. Yeah, Those God who can. make them will become like them. Everyone who... So yeah, he already covered the church fathers, and uh, I listened to like almost none of that. But uh, Augustine, in his uh, Confessions chapter 11, you could go look it up. He talks about how God cannot speak because speaking is an act in time and uh, it takes sequence. And so when God said, this is my beloved son, from the heavens that was an eternally programmed creature in time playing out an eternal will because god literally cannot talk and so open theists believe uh, we might be alone here we believe that god can in fact talk 
God did, when the Bible says that God said, this is my beloved son, open theists generally, generally open theists believe that God did in fact say the things that the Bible attributes to God. Who trusts in them. This is the point that I want to draw to your attention. What has the psalmist been saying about the idols of the pagans? That they're immutable. He's been saying that they're ignorant, they're mute, yeah. they're dumb, immutable. They can't hear, they're stupid. Right, immutable. And so when he says, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them, what he's saying is, those who worship stupid idols will themselves become stupid. Those who worship mute idols will themselves have their mouths stopped up. Yeah, maybe that means like they're they're killed though. Maybe I'm just throwing that as an option. Maybe it means that these people are going to get some sort of a present judgment for their for their idolatry. Okay, that's the point that the psalmist is making, and the same point is made in Psalm 135 in almost identical language. In Psalm 135, the psalmist says, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods, that is, the gods of the nations who are ignorant, who don't have exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, yeah. in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Yes. Does that sound to you like the god of truncated theism? <laughs> so literally... When these these people are like describing open theism, it's like God can't get a rooster to crow three times. Like, oh, what, what was it? I was just watching a little clip from the Bob Enyart James White debate. It's like towards the end, and uh, Bob Enyart or Bob Enyart is trying to explain that James White, yeah, yes, God can in fact do things. And then James White's like, but that would violate free will. It's like, no, he 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 can just do things. You know, it's uh, you you always pretend like he's impotent if he didn't control everything uh that's ludicrous and so i guess if you're starting from the position that god is impotent and you're attributing that belief to uh the people you're criticizing yes um this this is this is the kill shot right here but maybe maybe try not being um an ideologue maybe try not being an intellectual hack and try to actually represent that the position that you're criticizing as if you're holding that position intellectual hack and he's got what 3000 views he's he's propagating this intellectual hackery to 3000 people doesn't to me as uh, and then it goes on the idols of the nations are but silver and gold the work of man's hands they have mouths but they don't speak they have eyes but don't see they have ears but don't hear nor is there any breath at all in their mouths those who make them will be like them yes everyone who trusts in them here you have a psalm that is virtually identical to the other. And a principle, biblically, uh, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, if it's not repeated, then it's not true. God only has to say something once for it to be true. But when God repeats a matter, it's a, uh, you know, it's instructive to us. Okay, so let, let's say this guy was an open theist instead, and he had the same thought uh, patterns in his mind where where you could just point to these passages and then make gr grandiose points that are moralizing. If he's an open theist, he'd be like, look at this. It says that these idols, they have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Uh, the Calvinist, they deny all of this. They reject the God of the Bible. And, you know, 
Um, you know, the Bible only has to say something once, but if you look here, it says the Calvinists are stupid. The Calvinists will be killed or put into judgment in some fashion. The Bible only has to say this once. Why Why can't they just read the text? Why can't they just do that? So if if I wanted to be like this guy, if, if he was my <laughs> my gauge for what is rational, that is the same way to, same way to argue. One can make the exact opposite point with the exact same proof text in this exact same moralistic way. It's telling us this is important, among other things, right? And, and of course, it's, it, it repeats things to us because, after all, one of the attributes of man is that he's forgetful, right? Man is ignorant. Man needs to be reminded. People not only need to learn things, they need to be reminded of things because human beings are like the god of open theism. We're ignorant. Ignorant is a quality of human beings. Uh, so God has to tell us things. He has to remind us of things. So God doesn't describe all humans as ignorant. Uh, the Prince of Tear, he says, uh, no, no secret of the heart is hidden from you. Uh, when God's talking to people, often he treats them as very knowledgeable. And so this, this worm theology that you get, and I don't, I don't know if this guy's like full-blown Calvinist or anything, this worm theology, like, oh, we're so below God. Oh, nobody deserves heaven. We all deserve hell. We have one sin, straight to hell. One sin, we go there forever. You're not, not righteous. You're not considered righteous. Um, you're an abomination and everything. You have children, they should get all burned to the ground. You got a house that should be just demolished. You just deserve like the most painful suffering. You you stole a Tic Tac once. You deserve hell for an eternity for stealing that Tic Tac. This worm theology. The Bible doesn't talk like that. The Bible has righteous people. God talks to people as if they're competent and intellectual people who could make rational thinking decisions. He takes their advice. He queries them for advice. He, he says that they're knowledgeable. He talks about how smart people are in various contexts. And so this, this whole just, oh, dismiss everything people say. It's, it's this fake moralizing. It's like, oh, our theology is the more, more righteous theology. Oh, we're the true, true, uh, pious people because we think man is on such a low level compared to God even though man's made in the image of God, right? And so they're like, oh, we are so far below God, even though we are the image of God and we have inherent value that killing us is, is a mortal sin because we are the image of God. We're so below God in their theology. Yeah, give me a break. But nobody can tell God anything. All right, now Isaiah 44. I, I found it uh, ironic, by the way, and I'm sure the idol killed yeah, just like uh, Drew McLeod writes that uh, Job's comforters had warm theology. Th their whole theology, their whole stick to Job was, you deserve this because you're so evil, or you might be evil, or you have been evil, or sometime in the future there might be a chance that you might be evil, and so you are you deserve all of this. The these horrible things, all your children dead, you deserve all your children to die. And so it's, God wanted to kill these people. God wanted to kill these people killers watching um but i found it ironic that his channel is called the idol killer <laughs> because uh, because I, are isaiah mutable. 40 uh through 55 and really 41 through 48 is like the heart of this uh you have this section that scholars refer to as the trial of the gods and it's a section of scripture where god throws down the gauntlet challenging the gods that his people were whoring after okay, there's another 
so that's that's not quite an accurate description because it it doesn't the key part of that is who is the judge you know it's um he's attempting to convince a wayward israel to believe in him and worship him and to do that he sets up a trial a trial and, and so that they can bring forth evidence in order to convince the judge which is israel of the truth of the matter and so it's not just like this uh, ch a challenge, just throwing down the gauntlet and going to sparring or something like that. It's setting himself up in a subservient position with outside judges who are not God, who are weighing in on a matter as a third-party perspective. And so God is, yes, challenging the other gods, but he's doing it in such a way to convince people, a wayward people, of something, something that they ultimately, for the most part, reject term that people might uh get upset that i'm using but the bible uses it okay the bible speaks of of even god's professed people okay people who call themselves jews and israelites or christians uh again speaking anachronistically uh it speaks of them whoring after other gods and what god does in this section of isaiah is he throws down the gauntlet and he challenges these gods to prove that they are gods and how does he challenge them to do it? Over and over again, God challenges the idols that his people were whoring after to prove their divinity by declaring the future, by doing anything, by announcing it in advance and bringing it to pass. Okay, that's the challenge. That's yeah, those sound all all time bound. God is challenging. That's God doing actions. That's God changing and interacting with creation. Yeah, that sounds pretty open theistic. If God interacts with creation, then God is not uh, simple. God is not immutable. God doesn't have this omniscience that's ungenerated and unfalsifiable and non-discursive because he's he's interacting. He's he's gaining from outside himself. He's he's increasing his experience pool. He's he's thinking through processes and doing things. All of this is open theism. All of it is open theism. And they want to, of course, <clears throat> that's that's what happens in these discussions is they want to frame the debate and you just can't let them frame the debate. They want to argue something that very close to what open theists believe that, yeah, God knows a lot of stuff and God's very powerful and can do stuff. And so they just take it one step further, like God does everything or God knows everything. And so then you have to argue this nuanced view, but that's not their actual view. That's not the actual view that they ascribe to. It's ungenerated, eternal, unfalsifiable, non-discursive, uh, foreknowledge for of all events, past, present, and future, knowledge of all events. That's what they're actually defending. They're defending concepts such as immutability, simplicity. So, so when you turn to a passage like Isaiah where God is striving and God is getting angry and, and God is attempting to do stuff and, and failing and doing this all in real time and in response to people, and it violates every other principle that they ascribe to immutability and simplicity and being outside of time, those types of uh, those attributes. They don't want to focus on those attributes. No, because they, their own proof text would completely undermine the position that they have. Instead, they want to talk about their one specific issue. Their, their, their theology is not holistic. It's very compartmentalized. If they want to prove uh, simplicity or immutability, they'll turn to one passage over in Malachi. They'll, they'll forget the context and uh, they'll forget all their other characteristics of God while they're talking about that one, that one aspect. It's compartmentalized theology based on word, word thinking throughout the scriptures. 
based on whatever you want to prove at that moment. You flip to that passage and that proves your one thing. And don't think about it in context. Don't think holistically how that applies to the rest of your theology. Oh, that would be bad. But uh, that was actually funny in my Isaiah debate. And uh, he's getting hit from all these directions that he he never expected how, how all these passages disprove all these aspects of his own theology that he had never considered. And so I, it put him immediately on the defensive. It's made over and over again in this section. Here in Isaiah 44, right smack dab in the middle of this, it says, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. And this is picking up on the fact that the word for idol in scripture is is often uh, the word for wind image. or vanity, right? So those who make graven images are said to be futile, vain, vain uh, vanity. That's actually a pretty interesting. When God makes man in his image, and then Adam has uh, children in his image, that word also, I don't know if it's the same word he's referring to here, but that word also is used the same word as idol. So if you just do a text search on that, that Adam had uh, his son and his son was in his likeness, he had him and we were made in God's likeness. That's the same word, same word used for idol. And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a... Notice this guy doesn't actually have a point against open theism. He's just doing like a mini sermon about unrelated issues. And, and since the sermon is titled The Wicked Folly of Open Theism, and his audience is like, yeah, this, this sounds pretty good here. And they're nodding along for a lot of this, even though it has nothing to do with open theism. They'll walk away saying, wow, man, that guy really refuted open theism. It's, it's a little mental trick that like pastors like to pull where they, they, they sidetrack issues to talk about irrelevant things just to gain credibility in the points where they don't actually have very much evidence or are not even a very good point. A cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. That is, the, the human beings who are fashioning these idols themselves get hungry. Their strength fails. Right? And sometimes within the Bible, God gets weary. God gets weary of repenting in the Bible. Because it's mentally exhausting. That, that's one thing open theism could claim about God that other theologies, Arminianism and uh, Calvinism can't, that God can get mentally exhausted dealing with a stubborn and wayward people. God can get mentally exhausted. It doesn't fit normal conceptions of omniscience, mental weariness, but the Bible does ascribe it to God. So these gods are being made by men who are subject to all these frailties. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. Uh, he works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for you. Notice how Isaiah is. Notice how this doesn't have anything to do. He's not making a material point. We'll skip ahead just a little bit. Maybe, maybe I'll talk about something. All right. Psalm 10, verses 11, 12, uh, 11 and 12. The psalmist says, he, and this is David, by the way, he, that is the wicked in context, 
you go back to verses 3 and 4, David is referring to the wicked. Remember, Psalm 1 makes this fundamental antithesis between the righteous and the wicked. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God himself has created this antithesis between those who are his and those who are not. Jesus continued to perpetuate and affirm it, speaking of the children of the, of the devil and the children of God. Hear the psalmist in this same stream. So I find that when people have not ever interacted with an open theist and uh, they just can't conceptualize what open theism actually teaches and believe, um, a lot of times they'll do this thing where they're just going to start grabbing random verses from throughout the Bible that have nothing to do with the issues at hand and then just start uh, talking about what those mean, exegeting them, if you will, uh, quote unquote. And it, they have nothing to do with anything about open theism, but in their mind they do because they actually haven't actually interacted with the open theists to accurately understand what they're critiquing. It's... It, is it laziness? Is it incompetence? This guy, someone just gave him 200 bucks. 200 bucks? I'd spend at least a day researching whatever I'm going to talk about for, for 200 bucks. This guy doesn't seem to have done basic research. What's the antithesis he's talking about here? I don't know. We'll find that out. Maybe. I don't know. He says he, that is the wicked, he's using uh, a... a uh, uh, what was the term you use for a collective singular? He's referring to the wicked in general, the, those who are wicked. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, oops, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Okay, so this is actually very important for open theism, that normal Israel normal Israel did not believe that God had exhaustive knowledge of even the present. And so when people are interacting with Israelites, trying to teach them to worship the true God, Yahweh, over the false gods, keep that in mind that they are dealing with people who don't even believe that God has present knowledge. And how do they counter this? How do they argue? Do they argue in the way that he does? Uh, well, I, we, we skipped up a lot of his uh, philosophy in the first part of the video, but uh, people like him when you're interacting with him. Um, how do they argue against open theists? They don't argue in the same way. They, 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 they turn to these philosophical constructs and they're like, well, God must have this omniscience in order to be God. It must be exhaustive and it would be bad if he didn't have it. And look at these proof texts that say God God knows everything that must mean whatever whatever concept that I have in my head currently when I use this proof text. Uh, but but in the Bible, Isaiah doesn't argue like that. These people who Isaiah is arguing with, trying to convince them of, of the true Yahweh, do not believe that Yahweh has present knowledge. He doesn't, he doesn't counter them like a classical theist. He doesn't walk them through the proper attributes of God that God must have to be God. He doesn't take them through systematic theology. Instead, the counterargument is, is very simple. Yeah, God knows what you're doing, and God is powerful to do what God says he's going to do. Those are the counterclaims. God knows, and God can act. And so keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. He's going he's gonna to compare these people to the open theists without realizing that this point actually invalidates a lot of his arguments because None of the people, no, no one in the Bible held his theology. They don't argue like him. They don't talk like them, uh, even though they had way more reason to argue 
like he does. Way more reason to go over systematic theology, the dignum dio, proper attributes of God. You just don't see it in the Bible. He will never see it. Who's David talking about here in the psalm? The righteous? Practical the atheists. children of God? Christians? Yeah, in, in Malachi 3, the end of Malachi 3, those Christians, uh, using his term that he's calling Old Testament righteous, the righteous did not believe that God had present and past knowledge of events in Malachi 3, the end of Malachi 3. And so, yeah, sometimes even righteous people, he, he calls them wicked. L literally, he's calling righteous people wicked. He says the wicked folly of open theism. These people in Malachi 3 were the righteous, and they believed that God did not have present knowledge of events. He calls them wicked. So that's kind of despicable, uh, Mr. Anthony. I, I had to read his name because I, I don't know if I'm ever going to remember it. Or is he talking about the wicked as those who charge God with ignorance and say he will never see it? You're calling the righteous And certainly wicked. these wicked would deny to the God of Scripture knowledge of the future as much as they would of the present or the past. Goes on, Psalm 73, it says they... <laughs> Uh, surely these guys would have an attribute in common with open theists. Oh, okay. Okay. That is the wicked, verses 3 and 8, say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Psalm 73, by the way. Preach the word says, as a side note, we need to get Chris 60 more subs on his channel so he can have the ability to do super chats. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't feel good uh, asking. I think all the super chats are like money based. I don't feel good asking for money. That doesn't sound very, I don't know. The way is a passage of scripture where the psalmist is lamenting his own pitiable condition in contrast to that of the righteous, which he sees as flourishing. Uh, but then we're told in the psalm that he goes into the house of God and his thinking is reoriented. He understands what their latter end will be. Uh, he realizes that God reigns over all and that the wicked will be brought to a miserable end. Uh, but notice he's saying that the wicked are those who charge God with ignorance. You will never find in Scripture anybody making a propositional statement that God is ignorant. Never. Oh, wait, okay? wait, okay. Not talking here about anthropomorphic expressions and other things. Wait, like wait, wait. Okay, so right here... The literal verse we're reading is someone making a propositional statement that God is ignorant. Okay, so um, he might he want might want to put some qualifications on that because we're we're literally reading a verse doing what he's claiming, um, and he's just, <laughs> I guess that I'll come to. There are other sorts of statements that open theists or those advocates of dynamic omniscience will try to appeal to. But there is no propositional statement in Scripture charging God with ignorance uh, that uh, is properly understood as such. Uh, it's always the wicked, always, always, always the wicked who charge God with ignorance, just like it's not the early church fathers or medieval theologian or the Protestant. So we should actually talk about this a little bit conceptually. Conceptually, uh, the difference between these people who are wicked, who are denying that God knows what they're doing, and the righteous in Malachi 3. So there is a different mindset. Both of both of these groups think that God is ignorant. But the wicked here are saying, I, I'm going to do whatever I want because God doesn't see. And uh, I'm not going to get punished for it. So I can just live however I want. So 
whatever, God, I'll just do my own thing. I don't care what you think about. I don't care, you know, because you're not going to do anything. You just do not know. You just don't know what's going on. I'll do my own thing. Whereas the righteous in Malachi 3, these are people who worship God. They're like, God, we worship you. We follow you. But we're really worried here, God. We we don't want you to come back and kill us all. Accidentally, we, 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 we are your righteous. Please save us alive, God. So they're not they're not part of the same wicked group that's going on here. This These wicked people here are denying God. They're degrading God. But guess what? God doesn't care. This is not like this. God's like, I'm offended that these people didn't have, they don't think that I have propositional knowledge of things. No, it's not about that. Uh, that's not what's offending God. It's their blatant disrespect, their blatant disobedience, their rebellion from God. That is why these people are wicked. It's not their their denial of God knowing her events. It's not that. The righteous people in Malachi 3 also do it, but they do it from a different angle. And God doesn't mind. And, and he actually facilitates them. He's like, okay, you're worried about this thing? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to put all your names in it. And that way you're assured that when judgment comes, guess what? Your, your, your name's on the list. You're, you're a righteous person. You're getting in. You're getting in. Um, so God, God facilitates it. He loves these people about that. Reformers or the entirety of the Eastern Orthodox and Western church uh, who teach this sort of thing. It's the wicked. It's always been. So, so Zach, Matt, uh, Zach's mags. He asked, I just found your channel. Like how you put open theism was the best way to learn more about this theology. I'm just learning about it and it seems to make some sense. I put out a video, videos, like four videos of uh, two minute open theism. So if you put into the YouTube, YouTube likes to kind of censor like short search terms, but, but YouTube, uh, two minute open theism, there's about four different videos for, with a very good introduction and you can watch them all in less than 10 minutes because they're, they're two minute open theism. And so that would be a very good introduction to some basic concepts. And uh, that will actually lead you to explore further. Someone was just writing how that video led them to explore the concepts such as simplicity. Simplicity is a classical uh, pagan idea that was incorporated into the church. And uh, all, all the classical authors, the church fathers, believed in simplicity. And modern Christians, they, they're not familiar with this. Uh, the terms like ineffability, they're not you know, modern Christians. This is part of their tradition, their classical heritage, uh, what, what their classical theology is built upon. They have no idea what ineffability is, as simplicity is. They don't even know what uh, omniscience means in the classical definition. They're just completely ignorant of it. And so uh, one story I like to tell is when I put a little um, poll, there's a poll on a Calvinist Facebook page. It's like, do you affirm divine simplicity? The answers are yes, no, and never heard of it. Had over 100 votes, and most people unfamiliar with the doctrine of divine simplicity. Christians are ignorant of their own tradition, which leads people to become Calvinists or classical theists because they just don't know what it teaches. And so when, when they hear people who believe that these classical doctrines and then they're teaching about normal things, they just, through uh, osmosis, they, through, through diffusion, they, they pay, start picking up on these classical concepts with, without realizing the foundations. So go look at those two-minute open theism uh, videos for a quick introduction to open theism. And the wicked. Psalm 94, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, God of vengeance, 
God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the... Wait, now we're in Psalms 94. Did, did we miss something? Did Oh, okay. So um, the last verse was just about people denying God has knowledge are bad people. Therefore, open theists are bad. Okay, got it. Proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your, afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see, yeah. nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Yeah, this is actually, I think I have an entire podcast on this issue, that practical atheism within Israelite, uh, ancient Israel society, was uh, one that denied that God can see, could hear, that there'd be punishment or retribution in the here and now for their wicked acts. And that's what practical atheism looked like in those days. That's not what open theists believe. Open theists believe that, yes, God does see the world. God does know what people are doing. God does uh, catalog our sins, and there will be re recompense for our actions. And so it's definitely not applicable to open theists, but it does give us some data points of the mindset of ancient Israel at that time. These people are quote unquote, worse than open theists. They, these, these guys are open theists to the extreme. God does not have present knowledge. God doesn't. And then God says, he turns the tables, pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand? The counter arguments never. God knows all the past in complete detail, all the present in com the complete detail, and all the future in complete detail. No, actually, actually the response always is, God does see what you're doing, and you will pay for your acts. God knows. God sees. And so that, that's the response. That's the open theistic response. God, God gains information from watching what you're doing, testing you, and keeping account of your wickedness. Stupid ones. This is God's assessment of those who charge him with ignorance. He tells them to pay heed who says that he hasn't paid heed. He calls them stupid who think he's stupid. Yeah, so we're going to kind of skip over this because, again, the righteous literally also, righteous people, that's found in Malachi 3. I'll find some other references as well, so I'm not re referencing the same one over and over again. But those little things in, in the Bible where you're just reading the Bible and you come across a weird passage and you're just like, what the heck's going on here? And then you just kind of pay attention to the thought process and the motivations of the various actors and it, and it clicks. It's like, Oh, these people, the righteous people don't believe that God knows present events. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And so it's something that, you know, uh, Malachi three is often queried by uh, individuals trying to prove classical attributes. They've never read the context. They have no idea that this is in there. And, and, and every time I point out that there has to be a new book written in heaven to convince the current righteous people that God won't accidentally punish him on his return, they're confused. They've never heard of this in their life. Their own proof text, and uh, they, they've like never read the chapter of their own proof text. It says, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the right, eye, does he not gotta, see? He this. who chastens the nations, will he not Sanders' Socinian forebears? Uh, they... Yeah, Jeremiah. So uh, look at look at the wording of Jeremiah. So now we're at Jeremiah 23, 23. I don't know if you already read it, but it says, uh, I'm a God who is near. Can a man hide himself in hiding places that I do not see him? 
Only open theists believe that God sees and gains information through sight. God acquires information from outside himself. This is an open theist proof text. He does not. He does not, unless he, he's like completely ignorant of his own theology. I don't know anything about this guy. But he does not believe that God can see, that God gains information external to himself. And so all their proof texts, all their proof texts literally counter their, their, their classical beliefs about how they believe God's omniscience functions. God does not gain information. And point it out, every time you're dealing with these people, take them to task on their own. It, it's really, really funny. Now you'll say, well, okay, do you believe God could see? And then they'll go into this huge tirade about, oh, language is flexible and doesn't quite mean the, what it says. And it's like, this is your proof text. Okay, oh, so we can't trust that word in your proof text? What else in your proof text can't we trust? Uh, how do you know that this proof text means whatever strange theology you're coming to if you're just willy-nilly dismissing words in your own proof text? He even thought that God had a body. Uh, it was true of... Uh... Yeah, any present action, this is preached the word ministries, any present action by God demonstrates he's gaining info. It's not that difficult. Yeah, when God interacts, interaction is an anthema. Anthema? I... It's 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 a uh, it's 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 taboo. God can't actually interact with creation in classical theology because that would mean he's not immutable. So every time that the Bible describes God doing something, saying something, responding to someone, incorporating their prior events into his decision-making process, every single passage like that means open theism is true. Literally, you you could you could basically do a little test. Uh, go to a random chapter generator in the Bible pull up a random chapter of the Bible and just read it. You can make a case for open theism by just reading that God acts, God responds, God thinks God, God has feelings and emotions. God is stirred in, internally. These, these are things, this is how God's described. It's, it's, it's not very hard. Open theism is a very easy theology to defend because like the Bible is just chock full of it. Um, this, this lens, this Platonistic lens in which God is immutable and doesn't change. It's nowhere in the Bible. No, no one had these ideas when writing about God. And so it's, it, it's just, it's just not there. It's just not there. So every single page screams against it. it it's a huge, it, it takes a huge work of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, cognitive dissonance to just ignore all these proof texts, all, all these these emotions in, in God, all these actions and thoughts in God and the thought processes and God describing his motivations. It's like, oh, God said he didn't destroy all of Israel because Moses convinced him otherwise. Oh, pay no attention to that. I got some other reasons that are not in the text, but trust me, they're the real reasons, not, not the explicit reasons declared in the text. My secret ones that I made up in my head those are the ones we got to care about. The, that That's what they have to resort to. We're reading the Bible. Uh, a number of the other groups that uh, he appealed to. Here's Ezekiel 8, verse 12. Then he said to me, son of man, do you see what the cedars of uh, the elders, excuse me, of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Yeah, there's, that's actually a very important passage. Everyone should turn to it and read it. Um, that exactly is is what I always turn to for to say, modern Israel at that time, uh, modern Israel in those days, did not believe that God knew present events. And so just look how the prophets argue against it. It's always, yes, we do see, God does see, and you will be punished. So I'm going to skip forward again. Maybe he's got a proof text that's not just like, 
God watches people because that's proof text for open. His, all his proof texts are basically open theist uh, proof texts. But uh, we'll skip forward. Maybe he's got another verse in here somewhere. It looks like he's just doing questions and answers. So we'll see what he says here. This is an introduction. Okay, I even threw in a bonus. I gave you a number of quotes from the early church fathers, which I didn't originally intend to do. I did that. Because, I, think, I think it's just going to be questions uh, and answers now. Of what was going on in the comment section. And because it was apparent that some people uh, seem to think that they can, uh, you know, just innovate and introduce this into Christianity and then castigate those who say, no, this is not the Christian tradition. John Gott says, my favorite Christopher Fisher video is the one where he took a shot every time a Calvinist would emote. <laughs> it was so funny. That guy was so mad at me, too, when, when he saw that video. He's like, oh, I have you an excuse to get drunk. Or you're, you should feel so terrible about it. Like, what are you doing, dude? Oh, you're, you're an emotional mess. This is not what we have believed and confessed throughout our history. Um, so I have a lot more to say. Uh, the basic point that I'm introducing at this point is the fact that the neither the Bible nor uh, the early church fathers ever charge God with ignorance. It's always the wicked. It's always pagan philosophers. It's always uh, non-Christians, self professed Okay, so um, who's, who's the Bible's uh, most popular... The, the person God loves most in the Bible. At, we'll, we'll put a, put aside Jesus for a moment. Um, I think that would be maybe uh, the man after God's own heart. That would be, um, which king was that? King David. King David, uh, throughout the Psalms, just read them. He, he charges God with neglect, with uh, not, not caring, not knowing about his conditions. It's just everywhere. Ubiquitous. I don't know how, how many psalms we, maybe like every five psalms or so, there's an accusation against God to that effect, that God is being neglectful and not doing his duty and not paying attention. Why do you hide your face from me, God? Uh, your your people are suffering. It, 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 there's all sorts of accusations like this. By, by a man after God's own, oh, imagine, imagine open theist wrote one of these psalms. And imagine Anthony didn't know it was an open, or it was a, uh, Ellis Psalm that's found in the Bible and he came across it and there's like an open theistic author name on it. And then he's reading through this and it's like an actual Psalm in the Bible and he's reading through it and imagine his disgust uh, with, with all the words and the phrases used about God. He'd say, wow, this, this guy is terrible. This, this guy is wicked. Like, like the title of this video, he says, these open theists are wicked and they're so terrible, but who's the author King David, King David all the time makes these types of psalms a man after god's own heart criticizing god king david criticizes god and sometimes it is on the basis of knowledge so this guy's wrong um he's he's uh he's misleading his audience he he doesn't know enough about the bible i guess to accurately represent that data that's actually found in the bible king david i'll, I'll have to go find some reference. i don't have any offhand but king david Throughout, throughout the Psalms, accuses God of not knowing, not caring, not doing God's duty. He challenges God to arise and awake. He, he, he tells God to wake up, wake up and do your duty, God. Your righteous are suffering. And so, yeah, I guess, guess King David is part of those wicked open theists. Fest non-Christians, right? Muslims wouldn't pretend to be Christians. Jews wouldn't pretend to be Christians. It's always these groups 
that we find throughout the history of Christianity, all the way back into the biblical period. It's always these nations outside of Israel or the wicked among Israel who are charged with charging God with ignorance. This is not a biblical teaching. Yeah, absolutely. It's a clown world. God doesn't know some things. That's okay. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Um, Drew Blaze added me to this chat, and this guy's like, well, can you come on my podcast and defend dynamic omniscience? It's like, what? Um, that's that's a philosophical system that is predicated on ascribing to God proper attributes that we, we just believe in our heads that God must have. But guess what? The Bible doesn't care about God in that fashion. They, they don't look for God maker attributes of that sort. They're looking for practical use. What can God do? Uh, what does God know in such a way that it actually affects the here and now? They're not looking for what properties must God have to be, to be God. <laughs> and so um, if God doesn't know some things, that's okay. He's still God. If God didn't have didn't know the color of my car, I maybe he didn't care to learn it because you know sometimes I don't learn the color of things and and it's okay. You like you walk into a restaurant, do you care about the color of the chairs? I don't. And so it's okay for God not to care about something and not know something. God would still be God. We're not in this, this clown world where he's not going to be God anymore because uh, it, it violates some person's perception of what God must truly be to be God. This is not a historic Christian teaching. So it is, in fact, as the title of this video says, Wicked Folly. Now, I have a lot more to say. We need to talk about uh, the fact of God's exhaustive knowledge of the future. Uh, we'll do that. But by the way, let me point something out. Some of you might be thinking this already. I want to point something out to you from that quotation I gave you where John Sanders defines dynamic omniscience. The position is that God has exhaustive knowledge of the past and the present. So that sounds good so far. And knows his possibilities and, and probabilities, those events which might happen in the future. That's entirely bad. But then he goes on to say this. God cannot know as definite what we will do unless God destroys the very freedom God granted us. Now, you notice that Sanders has said that God has exhaustive knowledge of the past and present. But God can't know what people are going to do in the future. However, when you read open theist writers, they often want to say, some of them, one of the reasons, in fact, this is a Jehovah's Witness belief too, by the way. <laughs> but some of them want to say things like, one reason God can make a prediction about some things, right? Not He doesn't know it. He can't accurately predict everything. But one of the reasons he can make certain predictions is because God knows man's nature. God knows what's in every man. He has, according to Sanders, exhaustive knowledge of everything past and present, okay, including what's true of man right now. That would include man's desires, his thoughts, right? All of his background experiences, everything that's true of him. Yeah, so Sage writes, uh, we're the fools, but these guys believe God existed before time. Yeah, timelessness is a non-concept. And so... <laughs> Look at this. Or Agatha says, Chris, heads up. He never makes an argument for his position in the Bible. He just later goes on, goes to the Bible and frames the Psalms to bash us. Well, I think we just covered all the Psalms that he used and they were all proof texts against, maybe not all of them, like 90% of them were proof texts against his own position. So that was actually pretty funny. But uh, yeah, timelessness is a non-concept. Being outside of sequence and, and uh, being in this eternal now, that's 
that's like nothingness that uh, describe a timeless being in a way that differentiates that timeless being from nothingness uh just it's you you can't do it it's 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 it's, it's a non-concept but uh, uh we'll we'll see what this guy says i don't know if he's answering questions right now man god would know it okay but yet sanders turns around and says god can't know what a person will do so on the one hand open theists want to say things like god knows everything past and present so this is actually a very important point too you get the moat and bailey with dealing with the word knowledge now, I know what people are going to do. <laughs> um, I've predicted people's actions countless times on the program. Pretty much always right. Pretty much always right. And, uh, you know, it's not hard to know what people are going to do. Uh, people are going to scream at you if you call them fat or something like that. If, if, you, if you really, I was telling uh, my friend the other day, I was like, if you really want a woman to hate you, um, you, you can't. You, you can't show that you either hate or love her. Those are emotions. Those are positive emotions. What women dread more than being hated or being loved is indifference. If a man is indifferent to that woman, that will that will destroy them in, internally. And so, yeah, yeah I can predict uh, how women are going to feel if I treat them with complete indifference to their existence. It's, it's, it's not that hard. People can know things about the future, but you have this this shifting definition of knowledge. And so th there's a philosophical definition of knowledge in which it's a proposition which has a truth value and that truth value actually exists and can be linked. And that if, if you have this, you, you, if you have knowledge, you have access to this truth value, but then there's the colloquial definition of knowledge that I was just using, how I know what a girl will do and how she will feel if she's treated in such a way. If you belittle her image, you know, something like that. The, these things we can know using a colloquial definition of no, but they will shift mid argument between um, the, how we know things in the future. And then they'll shift all of a sudden to God having propositional, unfalsifiable access to truth values of future events. Like Matt Slick did to me when I was dealing with him in person, he's saying, well, I know he's trying to prove to me that we could have free will and the future can be known at the same time. He says, I know Jason is going to go to the car after this discussion. Uh, then, then he added, barring being hit by like a meteor or something like that. I was like, yeah, yes, that, that's how knowledge works. And God, in the same way, can know the same events. Yeah, okay. No argument there, but then he wants to shift to okay. So now God can have propositional knowledge of truth values with definitive truth values set in the future, and and at the same time, Jason also could be free to go to the car after the discussion. And so it's it's a sleight of hand. You can't let that happen. Um, you you need to uh, frame the debate and talk about what type of knowledge you're actually talking about and when you're talking about those types of knowledge. And then when they try to do that sleight of hand, you need to call them on that. You're shifting the definition of knowledge. You're, you're, you're not, you're not consistently talking about the same definition. Why? Because it's advantageous for you to shift definition mid debate in order to make a point that uh, he, he, this guy probably doesn't even know that he's doing it. He, he probably hasn't given it enough thought to know that that's actively what he's doing exhaustively but not the future because that would destroy man's liberty 
And yet they want to turn around and say God can make predictions because he has exhaustive knowledge of the past and present, including all of man's thoughts, desires, background beliefs, uh, background experiences, and all of these things. You see, I mean, you can't have it both ways. And, and there's a more sophisticated <laughs> argument that I'll make along these lines okay. uh, eventually. I, I just want to bring that to your attention right now. Oh, Okay, so just, just keep that. Uh, if Warren McGrew is here taking notes at some point, just note that he's going to make an argument that's dependent on philosophical definitions of these words. And, and then he's going to conflate it with how we normally know the future. It's going to be a shifting definition. Open theists routinely undermine themselves. They routinely undermine their own claim that God even knows the past and present exhaustively. And in fact, many of the arguments that they make for the idea that God doesn't know the future ultimately end up pulling the rug out from beneath their own feet because it would refute their own position that God has exhaustive knowledge of the past and the present. For example, it's very common to hear open theists appeal to the example uh, of God in the garden saying to Adam, where, where are you? Right. Uh, no, they, they no, want what? to press this literally. Where are you? God literally doesn't know. Where what? Who does this? You've made it up. Anthony, Anthony, did you just make that up? Did you just lie to your audience? Where Adam is. Well, is that yeah, the, the only people I ever hear referencing Genesis three in reference to an open theism debate is like a Calvinist trying to say, Hey, um, Genesis 3 is about God not knowing people in the garden. And uh, since you obviously reject that with me, then obviously all your other proof texts we should reject in the same fashion for because that's what we get to do. If, if we find one proof text in the Bible that we just don't want to accept, whatever the face value reading is, then you can just willy nilly just wipe out all the texts you don't agree with. Instead of, and then they don't actually want to talk about what's going on in Genesis 3. And if you say, you know, it could be a known answer question, or yeah, it, it could be, as you suggest, maybe God is actually inquiring knowledge. He doesn't know where they're at. Uh, then, they, then they flip out. They have like a mental breakdown. They're like, oh, I was using this as a point against you. And now, now you flipped it on me. I, I'm so angry that, that my proof text uh, system has failed me. That's something future or was that something present? That was something present. So much of the argumentation. No one makes that an argument. You're a liar. Past Anthony Rogers, you are a liar. At least uh, would, if it proved anything, prove that God was ignorant of something that was present, not simply something that was future. But all that is stuff to hash out later. Uh, right now, I'm going to be content to leave it with this and open it up for some questions. Some questions. Um, pardon me if I missed any other super chats. I don't think I did. Who gave this guy two hundred bucks? Um, uh, all right. It, Idol killers here. I think he's quickly going to become my best fan. Fatalism. No, thank you. <laughs> if you make clicking noises during your dead air, you're refuted because I called it fatalism. That's good radio. I'm sure he's going to bring something better than that in the debate, folks. But Let's not hold them to a very high standard in the comments section. I do have the mic. Come debate day, he's going to have an opportunity to have his full share of the mic and have his full say. Um, all right. Anybody if else? If this doesn't get um, good anytime soon, we're going to have to cut it. Let's see. At the day. Um, Take a long drink. Do some lip smacking. Okay, most of these questions so far that I'm seeing are not relevant. I mean, they're they're interesting questions, but hold on, see. 
Um, Kelvy says they don't think time is a created thing, that all things are just present, including God, as I understand. He says, uh, um, Disciple says, I wouldn't call Anthony. Yeah, Christian I mean, that's a standard point. position. Of Maybe. I don't know the guy. Atheist. Now, you could hold <coughs> to exhaustive divine foreknowledge, guy, even if you don't hold to super, temp super temporality. Uh, Aquinas makes this point. There's two ways one could do that. Um, I'm not going to get into that now, but that it's certainly part and parcel of what goes for much of open theism uh, to deny that God exists above time <laughs> or God exists sans time. Time is not a David writes lots of books behind him. He's probably very smart. Ah, uh, yeah, that's pretty funny. I should actually arrange like all my books behind me and then like, or maybe, maybe that's what I do. I'll, I'll set up my green screen. I have to install my green screen again because, because uh, I moved. So I got to put a new green screen and then I'll take a picture of all my books and then I'll just green screen me with all my books behind me. I think maybe that that's the best setup. That way I don't have to actually deal with all the logistics of moving and setting up books like this guy does. Yeah, he's probably read them all too. He's probably super smart. Re reading books makes your IQ go up. This is a well-known fact. A created thing. Uh, but I'm not going to pretend to have read every open theist. So it may not be the view of all open theists. Um, but I... Yeah, is Anthony only taking questions on the topic today? Kevlar says, I'm here. We can start. All right. Okay, so brief recap. This guy, um, all his proof texts for God knowing all future events are all verses saying that God watches the world. So uh, I think we're off to a bad start. I just, I some for some reason, I can't put my finger on it. I think he's off to a terrible start. Well, I, I will eventually take other questions, but first, uh, Dylan... I want to try and give attention to this topic. Um, so stick around. I'll turn to this. I Preach the word says it's crazy that a text states what it states, yet someone can't see it. I guess that's why Jesus said that you must become like a babe, and uh, he confounds the wise. <laughs> Here's a fantastic idea for the books. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then, well, I don't know if uh, all my books are just anime, so I don't know if the anime like increase. I don't actually own any anime. I don't know if anime increases the IQ reading anime. No, but actually, it'd be pretty good, and uh, I'll get some some people mad at me for my book collection. <laughs> I noticed that a lot of the questions. Um, notice a lot of the questions are about other stuff. Do you think open theism leads into synergism? <laughs> oh, no. That, <clears throat> well, oh, that'd so be terrible. In the first place, not all versions of synergism are equal. Uh, I've said that open theism is arch heresy, but I don't think something like Arminianism is arch heresy. I reject Arminianism. I think it's uh, contrary to the teaching of Scripture, but I don't think that Arminians are arch heresy. Drew McLeod writes, I think that lowers your IQ. Yeah, I got this news clip that's really fantastic where there's this uh, lady and she's like, this Democratic lawmaker has gotten in trouble because uh, he wrote on Twitter, <laughs> he says, anime, and she's like, that's a Japanese cartoon. Anime is the reason two nukes are not enough. <laughs> I'll have to go find that news clip and, and show it us sometime. But uh, it's pretty funny. Heretics. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was going to quote Arminius, by the way. I was tempted to quote Arminius affirming exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Like I said, I mean, this is just the common stock in trade <laughs> view of the Christian church. Okay. 
This oh is, no, Johnny F says that I should green screen a Rick and Morty poster. Ultimate high IQ Chad move. Uh oh. This is not a Calvinist, Arminian, semi Pelagian, Molinist, whatever issue, right? This is the common furniture of the house of Christianity. Okay, those who enter into this house, uh, you know, in this house, uh, there are a number of rooms. Look at that. Some random person just gave him another 200 bucks. It says, hello, Mr. Anthony. Hope you and your family are doing well. Thank you for this incredible work. Oh, what has he done? That's incredible. Ah. Open theism isn't one of them. Uh, <laughs> anyways. Um, <laughs> John, God's. yeah, I forgot about this one. He says, my second favorite Chris Fisher video is the one where he didn't use a logical fallacy to call Bruce Ware super fat and a homosexual. Yeah, because actually... Ad hominem fallacy has to be in the form of an argument where where your your premises don't lead to your conclusions. Just calling someone fat and gay is not, in fact, a logical fallacy. It might actually be uh, the fact of the matter, you know? Uh, maybe, maybe that's what you're trying to prove. That's actually when I'm dealing with Calvinists sometimes, I'll say, you're intellectually dis dishonest, and here's all my evidence. You're not a good person. And they'll say, oh, that's 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 a logical fallacy. It's like, no, no, you, you just don't understand. That's literally the thing I'm arguing. And here's my list of evidence why you're an awful human being. And it's just, this is the fact of the matter. It's not a logical fallacy. It is my premise. That's what I am arguing. Can you argue against this and prove that I need to take you seriously as a genuine human being who's worth interacting with? He's not even acknowledging. Oh, he's not even acknowledging his two hundred dollars in his super chats. Oh man, <laughs> wowie! This this is interesting. This guy just made four hundred bucks. Four hundred bucks in one night. I just talking about nonsense. None of his arguments followed. He um he, he doesn't seem particularly charismatic. I I don't. Someone's someone's sitting here watching this and they're like, oh, this is some good stuff. And they're they're writing notes. Oh. It's a big, big house, too. Maybe. Maybe he's using a, a wide-angle lens. I don't know. All right. So thank you so much, Siddhartha. Siddhartha says, hello, Mr. Anthony. Hope you and your family are doing well. Thank you for the... That angle is pretty interesting. So that could be a green screen itself. Maybe we should do some uh, some calculations on the angles there to see, to see if uh, it makes logistical sense for that to actually be a camera shot. Incredible work you do. God bless. Thank you, Siddhartha. Um, and let me say, since you brought up my family, I don't always mention all, you know, I sometimes will mention my daughter and stuff like that. Um, but as a good uh, theist, traditional theist who affirms absolute divine knowledge that not a hair can fall from my head apart from God's will. Uh, Drew writes, he's very... I do uh, <laughs> sometimes mention without... Drew writes, he's very articulate. Well, um... It's not necessarily my impression, especially like his uh, five minutes of lip smacking while reading comments. That was that was actually pretty funny. So I, I was watching. I don't know if anyone's familiar with who John Mayer is. He's like this, uh, like a singer songwriter. And uh, he had like this show on MTV and, which, and he was interviewing some of his fans and he had this room full of women. And he's like. Okay, so um, would you guys still listen to me if uh, I didn't sing and I just played guitar? And all the women are, are like, yeah, yeah, we'd all still listen to you. He's like, what if uh, I only sang and I didn't have guitar? Would you still listen to me? And all the girls, they're all like, 
yeah. He's like, what if I didn't sing or play guitar? And then all the women, they they just kind of like all sat there like dumbstruck because they didn't know how to answer. And they're just like, ah. <laughs> so maybe that's his his thing. His whole audience is so enthralled with him, they could sit through five minutes of lip smacking. Complaining, but merely uh, to inform you and to put... D, D. John writes, does God's knowledge change when he has a haircut? Well, probably. Uh, re having to recount hair. Before you as a matter of prayer, uh, my youngest daughter has ups and downs health-wise. So she's been in the hospital for the past couple of weeks. My wife has been there bearing um, much of that load because I have three, four jobs. Um, so be in prayer for that. Pray for her to be raised up. Um, and by the way, you know, I mean, I mean, goodness, where would I, I, I couldn't, I, and I say this all the time, but I got to tell you, I couldn't put my head on the pillow at night, enduring the sorts of things that I endure if I didn't have confidence in just this God. Okay, This is the God of Scripture who assures me that not a hair can fall from my head apart from his will. Uh-oh, I'm right? muted, This apparently. is the God to whom... I'm muted, apparently. Uh-oh. Nothing escapes his nose. Yeah, so jo D. Johns, uh, I think I was muted when I read his comment. Uh, he, because guess what? I actually muted this so that I wouldn't make lip smacking noises. Um, oddly enough, Dees Johns writes, does God's knowledge change when he has a haircut? Yeah, God has to recount. So yeah, that, that does make sense. Did God have to count very long? God doesn't have to, God doesn't have to count very long to count my hair either. But, uh, a uh, poor, poor, uh, Anthony, May maybe those $200 he could invest in like a bulk, like, like the Tim pool look. So Tim pool. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's always wearing this beanie. Um, you, you imagine him with like a full head of hair under there. Nah, not at all. He's like, he's like a, a bald guy under there. And so, uh, maybe a beanie beanie beanies are cheap, less than $200. Notice nothing is to him unforeseen. Nothing is to him a surprise. He doesn't learn anything. He's not scrambling around trying to account for the latest machinations of men. Okay. This is a sovereign God. And I utterly trust in his absolute knowledge with respect to all men and things and that he's governing all things well. And that even this situation, which is only a drop in the bucket. Well, it's, it's a big thing for us, but it's, uh, it's, but one thing among many other things that, uh, you know, we, we endure. Yeah. God foreknew with certainty from time eternal and in Calvinism, uh, absolutely determined the most horrific events we could ever imagine. So then we take comfort in God. It's that's uh, uh, it's it's psychotic um, to take comfort in a God who predestines and immutably immutably decrees the the terrible tragedies that we see throughout this world. It's it's absolutely psychotic to take comfort in that. Uh, but I won't bore you with all of that. Um, the Lord is good. Uh, the Lord fills my heart with joy, even in the midst of... Uh... So Agartha writes, Sproul said a maverick molecule would destroy God's plans. And Sproul seems to have been drawing on Spurgeon, who uses dust moat in the same argument. That one maverick dust moat would undo all of what... That's, that's how powerful God is in their mind, that a random, an uncontrolled dust moat would destroy God. So <laughs> that, that's their conception of God.
God predestines the most heinous evil acts in all of history, and they take comfort in it. And one maverick dust mote would defeat God. This is they 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 claim they have high theology. They 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 claim that they they treat God as as above, as a, on a higher plane, as as a sovereign. They don't. They 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 treat him in a very we we he just read he just read all those passages against the idols. They treat him like those stone idols. They treat him worse than that. A maverick desmo can destroy God. Uh, terrible things, and uh, I really do. You know, my let's my skip to the next next question. Um. All right. So uh, okay, skip that. Somebody said that's a lot of points. Okay, skip <laughs> At the that. Beginning of the broadcast, I was thanking people who gave me some right. books recently Skip that oh alan rojas says uh i'd love to see a debate between warren and anthony you would love to see the open theist position challenge yeah so i would too maybe you missed my comment but uh Skip that. Uh, it's in, okay it's not true that the augustinian view is originates with augustine right augustine's view was held by other fathers before him uh, and it was never by any stretch condemned as it is by open theists. And uh... Okay, so this is actually pretty interesting, this question. The early church fathers talk about foreknowledge as foreseen. Would you agree with that idea or not? So the two minutes that I jumped into and actually saw this guy talking about the early church fathers, he's talking about a quote by Origen, a quote that I had posted on God is Open. I'm trying to get everyone's takes on what the heck Origen's talking about. And in the context of that is Origen literally, literally arguing that the foreknowledge being talked about throughout the Bible is not about foreseen or propositional knowledge. It's like a relationship. And so Origen wasn't in that passage arguing against uh, like a fatalistic knowledge of all future events within God, but he was arguing that the foreknowledge word being used in the Bible was a relationship. And his part of Origen's argument in context was God foreknows his elect, right? And so it's it's not, God doesn't, if it was about propositional knowledge, it would include the non-elect too. God would just foreknow everything, but it's, it's actually just focused to a specific target audience. Therefore, it's not about like knowing things in advance. That's not what's going on with that word. And that was Origen's direct argument. So he the, the like the two minutes of this that i saw where he's talking about he seems to have understood that but he doesn't seem to be answering that question in that fashion uh other people it's it was never condemned by uh christians um and then there you got kelpie saying which father do you affirm determinism <laughs> a loaded term right uh the, the better yeah. question is which father affirmed predestination and so forth no but, uh going back to mr liver's question no what did predestination mean to the, to them oh yeah actually okay so that is actually a very good question which fathers uh which which of them affirmed predestination if you pull up the greek use of the word pro arizo and uh it's a uh, perseus the perseus text search it's not used that often and so which ones did affirm predestination and which ones affirm it in a Calvinistic sense is a good question. Um, some fathers are very careful, actually. Um, yeah. I'm using the term foreknowledge in a, in a very pedestrian way. Uh, but origin, one of the things origin said is 
Now, yeah, Drew writes, what a dodge. And so you got to be careful of that people are going to restate your question in a way that's beneficial to themselves. And, and if you really actually care about the wording of your question, you have to redirect to your actual question. <laughs> like, oh, that's funny. Um, what was it? It was like today. Oh, it, it was terrible. I, it was like today or yesterday. I, I was on this web page and someone's like, okay, we need to list out mistranslations within the King James. And I'm like, okay, unicorn. And uh, all these King James onlyists came out of the woodwork argue, arguing with, I spent, I spent like half my day arguing about unicorns. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm spending half my day arguing about unicorns. And I was like, oh, the horns of, of the unicorns. And then like, that was, that was the whole comment. And some guy got really mad. And she's like, yes, if you'd actually read the text, it's plural horns and they belong to unicorns, plural. Uh, and so th that's way you could have multiple horns. And they went off on this huge tirade. And so then I asked them the question. I said, okay, so would you affirm with me that if the Bible ever used horns, plural, in reference to the word for unicorn and it was singular, then in fact, we're not talking about unicorns and the King James has mistranslated and he didn't want to answer that question because uh, he, he might have figured it was a setup because the Bible does use horns, plural, in reference to unicorn singular or the word for unicorn singular. So it's, it's a mistranslation by the LXX because these people who are translating the Old Testament they didn't know what to do with that word. They didn't know uh, how to how how to render it in Greek, and so they used the like the one horn, the, the mono. Mono is part of that word. <laughs> oh, David says I'm pro unicorn. Uh, unicorns actually don't figure in mythology, so they they could be real animals at some point. Um, I, it's it's hard to know how they got into the lore, but. I don't think the King James authors were writing about it. Uh, well, not the King James authors. Uh, the, the, the individuals who wrote, wrote the Old Testament, I don't think they're writing about unicorns as the King James translates it. King James seems to translate it based off of uh, the LXX, which seems to be a corrupted translation. Unicorn equals rhinoceros. Very probable. Very probable. But uh, there is one passage in which a singular... Uh, it's like raw or something. Um, the animal used for unicorn. There's a singular animal, and it's ascribed multiple horns. And so you do you do encounter that. I think it's in Numbers, Numbers 23, uh, but it does exist in the Bible. Anyways, way off topic. I spent like half my half my day arguing about unicorns. I don't know why. I I don't know why. Why do I do this? Follow this carefully. Okay. Origin says God does not have foreknowledge of evil. This is not a contradiction of my claim that God knows everything. Okay. Exhaustively, the future included. What Origin is doing is he's being technically precise. He's making the observation that the term foreknowledge refers to persons in scripture. Oh, there and he goes. To, uh, this is the part I saw. Uh, so, so for example, um, in Romans 8, it says those whom God uh, so he's correct here. foreknew, these he also called. Sometimes Arminians will say things like God foreknew that people were going to believe. So they're talking about foresight, right? God looks down the corridor of history and he sees, you know, Jenny raising her hand when the preacher is doing the altar call and so forth. 
that's the way some Armenians will see the term foreknowledge. But foreknowledge is never used that way in Scripture. When Scripture uses the term foreknowledge, yeah. in, in cases like Romans 8.28, it's it's not referring to events or or things, but to people, and it's yes. saying that God knew them, yes. right? And so you have in He's contrast. Well, you have in contrast to that in Matthew seven, Jesus saying, "The wicked, I never knew you." Yes. Okay. Jesus was not saying. Okay, so yeah, this this is all an origin. The things that he's saying is exactly what Origin argues, and so he right now he's recounting Origin's arguments and recounting them at. Uh, actually, accurately. You know, where did you people come from? You know, I created everything and everyone, and somehow uh, you guys slipped out, and I, I didn't know you existed. So Origen's argument in relation to the word foreknowledge is that foreknowledge only has as its object people. And so it's actually not talking about propositional knowledge of future events. Instead, it's talking about like relationships. And Origen goes through a series of arguments to show how foreknowledge is applied to like righteous people, but not unrighteous people and not events. And so he's, his claim is that it's not about whether God knows the future or not. It's about like a relationship. And so Origen, I think Origen's on the right path here. And our friend here, Anthony, I got to look at his name. I don't know if I ever remember this guy's name. Our friend Anthony is accurately recounting Origen's arguments on it. So I'm actually very surprised that he's familiar with it. And so that is actually pretty surprising. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that he didn't set his affection upon them. They didn't belong to him. They were yeah. not the objects of his love. The same point is made by God in Amos when God says through the prophet, of Israel, you only have I known of yeah. all the families of the earth. So the term knowledge and foreknowledge often again he's recounting Origen's arguments. Origen says uh, over here it says God didn't know these people or God knew these people, and it's not about like like knowing the future. It's not not that it's that's just not the concept being communicated in those verses. Often has in view God setting His love upon particular people. Uh, even in advance, right, for knowledge. Um, but anyways, j uh, just not being technical and just using the term foreknowledge in the sense of knowing things before they happen from our perspective. Uh, the the fathers taught that God knows everything, okay? And some would say that, uh, understand this in the sense of foreseeing. Others would understand this in the sense of uh god ordaining or so the question would be well did clement of rome believe that god acquires information in real time does, does god watch the world clement of rome and clement of rome only has the one work unless you're counting uh second clement or whatever which is basically an apocryphal work and uh, not to be accepted but really there's only one work you're looking at and there's very strong open theistic themes or, uh, planning it. Polycarp was the other one. And so someone like Ignatius is, uh, Ignatius is way too late. They're definitely Platonized. Um, uh, Ign Ignatius was, um, has so many different versions of his work. A lot of them seem a little bit Platonized. Um, Arrhenius, of course, was Platonized. And then, uh, Polycarp, though, has open theistic themes. I think there's various versions of the Polycarp texts also floating around that we need to be wary of because what would happen is 
uh, people would take works that are known and attributed to a writer and they might delete things that they don't like or they might add paragraphs to try to say that this ancient writer affirmed their own beliefs. And sometimes it was out of pious motivations. Uh, Bart Ehrman writes in his uh, Lost Gospels about uh, one of the, one of these frauds being exposed who, who wrote under uh, a name of one of the apostles and he was exposed and he admitted to it. And he said he did it for righteous intentions. So it wasn't always based on fraud as well. It was sometimes done by pious, true believers trying to further their own theology. But we do need to be wary of the textual tradition that has come down to us. People like Ignatius has, have text all over the place. So we don't, we don't quite know what the true text is. But uh, Clement of the Rome is definitely an open theist. And we see open theistic themes in Polycarp. As, but, and read Josephus. Read Josephus, Josephus, a believing Jew who, who grew up in the priesthood, who came from a priestly line, who studied uh, the Essenes, he studied the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, and claimed to be a Pharisee. This individual said stuff like, in the Garden of Eden, God was surprised. This is normal Jewish theology at that time. And so when Paul's writing, make your request known to God, and uh, he writes that the Holy Spirit searches us and then communicates that information to God. Those are things that Paul actually believes because he's an open theist. He's He, he comes from this Pharisee tradition as well. And he believes these the same types of things that the Pharisees believe. And so we do need to consider that and look at people like Josephus and then compare him to Philo of Alexandria, who is a definite Neoplatonist. Uh, some people say he's like just a normal Platonist or a middle Platonist, but he's like a Neoplatonist. Uh, that's, that's what he is. Uh, he believes God's timeless and ineffable and uh, simple and can't have predicates. That's that's what he believes. And uh, he's writing from Alexandria. And, and so all that whole line, that whole line stemming from Alexandria is suspect. We shouldn't give it too much cre credence. And we should look at what the actual writers, the people in, steeped in, in ancient Judaism, what those people believe, those authors believe. Josephus is great. Uh, Paul's great. Clement of Rome is great. Not Clement of Alexandria, uh, the former Platonist uh, who who's influenced by Platonism and debated with other Platonists about the best way to Platonistically represent God, you know, Clement. But I don't know. We're going pretty long here, and I think we're running out of material for this guy. Let's see if there's any more questions. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Aquinas. I don't know. We're talking about Aquinas. But yeah, that's this. This guy had no arguments against open theism. He misrepresented open theism, didn't understand open theism, maybe never interacted with the open theist, and uh, complete misrepresentations. And all his proof texts, all his proof texts argued against his views. God watching the world is open theism. So we're, we're probably going to cut there for tonight. Um, and uh, I don't know, get some sleep. I don't I haven't had very much sleep in a while, but it's good. Um, I look forward to this debate. I do like the fact that Anthony knows the references from the church fathers and are, is very ably, able to accurately explain their arguments. I, not that he's affirming or denying their arguments, but he's able to accurately, accurately regurgitate for our edification. So Agartha, Agartha writes, uh, God bless you, Chris. Uh, God bless the audience. And, uh, well, thank you for coming. Thank you for watching. Questions, comments, put that down below. Start a thread on God's Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.